Resurrection Relationships Part 2. We started this last week. We're going to wrap it up this week with the ending, or the second half, of John chapter 11. So we're continuing where we left off last week. There's Jesus, his disciples in a small town called Bethany, not far from Jerusalem, as we learned. There's Martha, Mary, and the recently deceased brother, Lazarus. According to chapter 11, verse 17, Lazarus has been in the tomb for four days. Martha gives Jesus her grief, her frustration when Jesus arrives, at his not being present when her brother Lazarus was sick unto death and finally dies. But we already know that Jesus purposefully avoided attending to Lazarus while he was sick because God had bigger more glorious plans in store for them all. Three simple points for you this morning, the first of which is found in verses 28 to 37. It's this, Christ's response to grief. That's the first thing I want you to note today, Christ's response to grief. So first and foremost, we see in our Lord a response to a situation of grief. Look at what takes place here. It isn't a matter of whether or not Jesus is God's son. He is. And as such, he's the second person of the Trinity. He's divine. He's already demonstrated this through numerous signs, namely that he is the son of God. But he isn't only God's son. With Jesus' incarnation, he's also Mary's son. He isn't half and half, 50-50, half God, half man. Instead, Jesus is fully God and fully man, a hundred and a hundred. And as such, Jesus is standing over a a situation that he can change, and eventually he will. But that doesn't mean that he always will. Something for us. That is important to remember. We know thus far that Jesus is keenly aware of the pain that death sometimes can cause in relationships because Jesus isn't a robot. He isn't an appearance of a person. Jesus is a person. Jesus is a real person who loves and cares for his friends and his family. He's aware of who he is in regards to this fallen world. And as a result of that knowledge, he also is aware of the grief and the impact that death has on the people who are in his life and the world around him. When Mary sees Jesus, she falls at his feet and says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Sound familiar? Last week, Mary's sister Martha said the exact same thing in verse 21. Jesus is approaching Bethany. Mary, sorry, Martha runs out and meets Jesus and says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Let me ask you this question. Are you like Jesus here, though, willing to go through some emotional, psychological hardship in order to see the will of God unfold in your life? You see, they're saying, Jesus, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. And what they're saying is true. And Jesus is about to demonstrate that fact. But there's a reason why Jesus wasn't there. And we know that. 
We know that Jesus wasn't there so that the glory of God could be demonstrated. And yet, between Jesus not being there and the glory of God being demonstrated, there's this period of hardship, right? This period of emotional and psychological grief. And I'm just wondering, this is a question for you and for me, are you and I willing to go through some emotional and psychological hardship if we know that on the other side of that hardship is the will of God for us? Just imagine if, when this all happened, Jesus' response to the Father was, no, I don't want Martha and Mary to go through this grieving process. Your will, Father, is going to have to wait. Your glory is going to have to wait. I'm going to Bethany right away, and I'm going to heal Lazarus because I don't want my friends to go through this hardship. Suddenly, John 11 has lost its power, hasn't it? (laughs) Imagine if that was the case, but we've seen numerous attempts through the years of people trying to demoralize and dilute Jesus in this way. They want Jesus to be little more than a person who looks, thinks, and acts just like they do. And Jesus is not that person. Jesus, as he says in John 8, 29, always does the Father's will, even when it's difficult, because let's face it, sometimes the Father's will is difficult. Amen? But it is always for our good, and it is always for his glory. It's important that we don't miss the timing of events here. Finally, Jesus is shown the tomb. When he arrives there, he weeps. One of the best-known verses in the Bible, if you've ever memorized the Bible verse, you know, you say, hey, I memorized the verse today. It was probably this one, right? John eleven thirty-five. 35. Jesus wept. I'm a scholar. My memory skills are just phenomenal, right? It's the shortest verse in the Bible, but what a powerful verse. Easy to memorize, full of meaning. The word in Greek is different, interestingly enough, from that word used to describe the crying that Martha and Mary were experiencing. There, the word suggests something else. Here, it suggests that he literally shed tears. It's kind of what it suggests, that Jesus literally shed tears. It's a word that seems to suggest that Jesus' weeping wasn't simply about Lazarus' death, but rather about the reality of what actually causes death. Not just that he lost a friend to death, but that he hates death. If you can kind of picture this, like Jesus is sort of gritting his teeth a little bit and a a tear comes down his cheek, that's that's what's being said. Not that he's like uncontrollably crying outside the tomb, not like that, but that he's angry that his friend is dead because he's angry at what sin does to you and me. That's the kind of weep. That's the kind of emotion that Jesus is placing on display here. It wasn't a wail. It wasn't an inconsolable cry. It seems to suggest that this is a grief over the reality of the situation. And yet, remember from last week, Jesus wanted this to happen so that he could put on display the glory of God. I'm wondering how many of us are in a circumstance right now that we are failing to see purposefully for God's glory.
We've all been in situations where we're like, yeah, I want an exit card right now. But I wonder how many of us are looking at it going, God, what are you going to do on the other side of this? God, I don't want this situation to be wasted. I want it to be for my good and your glory, so I will patiently see my way through it with you. I wonder how many of us are remembering how Christ responded to grief. Secondly, verses 38 to 44, we see not only Christ's response to grief, but his response to death. This is what we see secondly. If you look at verse 38, it says, Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave. The stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha said, Lord, he's been in there four days. He's going to stink. And Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man came who had died, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with the cloth. Unbind him, he said, and let him go. Secondly, we see Jesus' response to death. This is where we see the miraculous event unfold in this chapter. It surrounds Lazarus' death, the one that we know so well through the stories that we've heard. Remember what Jesus said in verse 25. I am the resurrection and the life. Remember Jesus said it was for the good of his people that Lazarus died because they would see the glory of God. So Jesus is standing there. Martha's there. Mary's there. All of those who were attending to them during their period of grief are standing there, family and friends, all in attendance at once. And Jesus says, remove the stone. Roll away the stone from the tomb. Presumably, Jesus is telling those who are there in the company to do this. Once this happens, Jesus is reminded by the pragmatist, Martha, that he's been in there four days and it's going to be a really foul stench. Jesus aims back at her with this ultimate and eternal purpose and response. Did I not tell you that if you believe, you would see the glory of God? So Jesus commands the stone to be removed It is done so, and Jesus sort of says a prayer here. It's kind of interesting how it unfolds in the text from John relaying the situation, but one thing that you and I can surmise from this is the fact that either this is what Jesus is saying aloud for them to hear, or this is what John records of Jesus saying after he's already sort of breathed a prayer that's not recorded here. One way or another, it doesn't really make a difference. What you and I can understand from this is that when the stone was rolled away and Martha is like, oh my gosh, this guy's going to stink, at some point Jesus said, God, you are good. God, you answer our prayers. God, you love us. Father, I'm not praying this prayer for myself. I'm praying this prayer so that the people around me know who you are and will catch a glimpse of your glory. Say amen if you're listening. Listen, we're not Jesus. But it says something to people when they see you and me pray. Let me say that again. You and I, we're not Jesus. 
If you're raising dead people, I need to know so that I can steer clear of you. You and I, we're not Jesus, but I think it says something to people when they see us pray. It says something to people when they hear you and me give thanks to God publicly. Everybody prays in private. That's nothing too special, but praying in public. Well, that says something, doesn't it? It says something to those who are around you. It says something about your allegiance It says something about your hope. It says something about your love. It says something about your faith. It tells people who are around you that you are tied to God. Now, I don't know how often you have noticed this, but have you ever noticed that every single time Jesus eats in the gospel, it says that he lifts up the bread and breaks it and gives thanks to the Father? Every single time. When he feeds the 5,000, it says that he breaks the bread and gives thanks to the Father. When he sits at the Last Supper, it says, this is bread that represents my body, which is broken for you. And he says, he gives thanks for it. Do this in remembrance of me, he says. Every time the Father sits, excuse me, every time the Son sits and eats, he gives thanks to the Father for what he has done. I wonder how many of us are missing the opportunities that we could provide to others to see the glory of God if we would just pray more in public. I don't mean that you go out to eat and you ask the restaurant to stop because you need to pray aloud and everybody. But I do think that there's this feeling, even when there's an unbeliever at the table, you say, hey, do you mind if I just say a quick prayer real quick for this meeting? I've never had somebody say no. Never. In fact, in my 20, how old am I? Three. 23 years of ministry experience, I don't have any references of someone telling me not to pray except for one. And that was in the PICU of Miami Children's Hospital. That was a tough one. There are situations in which there is difficulty and spiritual warfare and hurt and brokenness. And if someone were to say, you know what, Joe, I really prefer if you just don't pray, I can still pray privately. And of course I did. But what I'm telling you is, if you aren't taking opportunity to say, hey man, do you mind if I just say a quick prayer for you? God, I pray that you be with this brother. Be with him, strengthen him, give him wisdom. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Short, sweet, say it, give it to God, and be done with it. You have just prayed more over that person, perhaps, than that person has been prayed over in years. But if you say, hey, I'm going to pray for you, and then you never actually do it, what good has that done? Take opportunities to pray in public. Well, this takes place. Jesus says, I'm doing this, Father, so that people can see the work that you're doing. That's why I prayed aloud to you, Father. And then it says after this, verse 43, when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. I love it. It says, John says, the gospel writer standing there, he's witnessing this, that Jesus said it not with a wimpy voice, not with a monotone voice, but with a, what kind of voice? Lazarus! Come out. 
I think he did this on purpose. Jesus could have gone and Lazarus could have come out. He could have whispered it, Lazarus, come out, and it could have happened. Jesus could have done it however he wanted to do it. Some of us have been shouting our entire lives, and it hasn't changed a thing. Amen? (laughs) Jesus doesn't have to shout. But I think the loudness of the command, given the circumstances of the situation, just lends power and magnitude to the moment. Amen? You, You feel this? Lazarus, come out! I love what St. Augustine said years and years ago. St. Augustine said, if Jesus hadn't have said, Lazarus, at the beginning of the command, come out, all the bodies in the tombs everywhere would have come out. <laughs> Lazarus, come out. You know, this is what God has done to you. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 says, we're all dead in trespasses and sin until God says, Joe, come out. Be alive. By his spirit, he has made us alive. Ephesians 2, 5 says, he's made us alive in Christ. Spiritually, yes, yes, we we have a resurrection that we're anticipating, but that's why the resurrection of Lazarus is significant because it's teaching us physically what is already happening spiritually, namely that those who are dead can be made alive in Christ. Hey, if I can do this with a body, I can do it with a soul, God is saying. I wonder how many of us remember the day when our first name was called and we were told to come out. Verse 44 says, the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound, right? The linen is wrapped around his hands and his feet. Probably the legs are wrapped individually. They typically would wrap up to the shoulder pit. And Jesus said to the people standing around, unbind him so that he can come all the way out. This command was to the people standing around. And I don't want to spiritualize anything right now. I don't want to go too far. But, I, but listen, I, I do want to say this. Isn't, don't you think it's interesting how Jesus includes people? I love how he includes people. When he's, at, when, he's, when he's dealing with the young girl who is sick unto death, right? Is this Mark 5, I believe? And then she, she dies. She's not sick unto death. She's only sick. And everyone laughs him to scorn, Mark says, because they knew she was dead. And he raises her up. And when, she's, she, when she raises up, Jesus says, make her something to eat. Make her something to eat. Why? I think that is so interesting. Why is it that when Jesus performs a miracle, everybody who's standing around gets included? How many of us are anxiously standing around awaiting for an invitation from the Lord to get involved? Somehow, some way. Listen, everybody there cared about Lazarus. Everybody there cared about Martha and Mary. But what do we learn in these circumstances from our Lord? What is his response to death that we can get through this together? And that he has the power over death to bring life, not just physically, but spiritually. And when Jesus does a miracle, so often he includes those who are around to become involved in the circumstance or the situation 
for God's glory and the involvement and comfort and consolation that is available there through togetherness. Before moving to our final point this morning, let me make this quick note. This is a unique situation. This is a unique situation. This resurrection that Lazarus has just experienced at the hands of Jesus was something that wouldn't happen again like this. Lazarus has been raised from the dead, but say amen if you're listening. Lazarus will die again. Lazarus doesn't stay alive. Lazarus will, we're guessing, grow old, grow weary, grow tired, and pass away again. But when Lazarus died the second time, there would be an expectation in the future that no one else around the world would have like those who were there when he died the first time. Amen? Man, Lazarus died again. Yeah, but I'm not worried. Were you there in Bethany that day when Jesus came through? Lazarus, he was shouting at the tomb. Here comes Lazarus. God is going to raise our brother Lazarus again. And because I have faith in him, I believe God is going to raise me again. Because Jesus said this when he did it. What did he say? He said, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Finally, we see Christ's response to persecution, to grief, to death, and here to persecution. This is verses 45 to 57. It says, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. That is, in John's gospel, a catchphrase. If you believe in Jesus as a result of a sign, that's what we would call a Christian. They have placed their faith in Christ because they have seen his power. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council, that would be the Sanhedrin, and said, what are we to do? This man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. The Romans will come and take us away, take away our people, take away our nation. Interesting choice of phrase, by the way, right? They're occupied by Rome right now. They really don't have much of a nation to speak of. But wow, how damaging a bad perspective can be. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man shall, should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into how many? One, the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to kill him. Verse 54 says, So Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and he was there with whom? His disciples. With this seventh sign in John's gospel, the raising of Lazarus, with this seventh sign, with this climactic event in Jesus' ministry, the opposition is really, really frustrated. They are 
as we all are at one time or another, at a place when they either say, I'm right and he's wrong and somehow this God thing can be explained in a different way, or I'm wrong and he's right and I've got to submit myself to the strength and the glory and the power of Christ. We all get there, don't we? We get to that point when we either have to say, you know what, I'm tired of fighting. I'm tired of arguing. I'm tired of debating. I submit myself to God once and for all. I'm yours. You're mine. You will be my Lord and my Savior, and I will be the saved, and we'll call it a day. Either we do that or we just continue to fight until the very end. I think that's what we're seeing here in this last section. Many of them believed. Some of them didn't. But as a result of the event that was taking place, the Sanhedrin and the Jewish leaders began to plot against Jesus to kill him. And because this was transpiring the way that it was, Jesus decides not to be public anymore. Caiaphas, who was the high priest at the time, makes this statement. It's very prophetic. He didn't mean it in a spiritual way, although what he said was absolutely true. It's better for one man to die than a nation should perish. He prophesied, so to speak, that Jesus would die, not just for the nation, but for all those who would be gathered together into one body for God's glory. In other words, the simple translation is, this Jesus has to go. Let's kill him. It'll save the world as we know it. With this transpiring behind the scenes, Jesus resolved not to be so public anymore. Even though his purpose was to come for the world, right? John has told us that and taught us that, not just for the Jews, but for the world. And even though he has already done so much for the world and in the world publicly for all to see, Jesus now, under these circumstances, has decided to reserve himself for his disciples and his closest friends. Interesting. Friends, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 1 says, For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. There are some occasions when it would be irresponsible for you not to argue and assert yourself. To address issues that are aimed at you or to generally defend yourself and your convictions. But... There are other times when a response from you in that circumstance would not be responsible, not even necessary, might even just be hurtful. There's a season for everything. There's a time when you should respond, and there's a time when you don't need to bother responding to that. We've seen Jesus be so public, so adamant, so forthright, and then all of a sudden, he just withdraws from the public. Now, does he withdraw from the public because he's afraid? Of course not. Does he withdraw from the public because he believes in the fear of man more than the fear of God? Certainly not. Instead, he withdraws from the public to invest more privately in his disciples. 
Thus far, Jesus has argued and debated and defended himself, his calling, and his father's purpose. But here, as the time for his crucifixion approaches, his ministry work, so to speak, becomes less public and it becomes more private. He starts investing in his disciples. He starts investing in his friends. Listen, can I say this? Say amen if you're listening. We need to reach out into the world. We need to reach out and let people know who Jesus is. But we need to take care of each other. There's nothing wrong with ministry being done in private so that we can be strong and do ministry in public well. There there is such a thing as doing ministry in public to the extent or cost of your health, mentally, emotionally, to that of your family. Every now and then we have to bring it in. We have to focus on ourselves, our close ones, our church, our disciples. I love what the old adage says. uh, The old adage said, excuse me, you don't have to attend every argument you're invited to. That's true. Every time there's a fight, you don't have to join in. This is one of those instances in which Jesus didn't. The persecution continued, and instead of him addressing it, he withdraws. Why? Because there is a season for everything. And this particular season was for him to invest in his disciples and his family and friends. Man, there's a lot of truth in that. There's a lot of truth in that. We can't miss what Paul says in Galatians 6.10 when he says, Let us never tire of doing good to all the world, especially those who are in the household of faith. Did you get that? Especially those who are in the household of faith. As Christians, we sometimes think that we've got to address every argument and every point. We don't. We need to make sure that we're healthy. We need to make sure that our church is in a good standing. That way, we can face the world together and push back the darkness together. There's a season for everything. And Jesus, in this particular instance, saw it as a season for private ministry, not public. Let me close with this. We've learned a number of things from John chapter 11. Three of them this morning is that Jesus knows our grief. Jesus knows how to conquer death. And Jesus knows what season we need to be public in and to be private in. I wonder where this text has met you this morning. I wonder if you're just hearing for the first time that Jesus has power over the dead. I wonder if you're just hearing for the first time that Jesus is not only God, but man, and his being a man puts him into a place of familiarity with the grief that you've experienced, giving him the ability to comfort you, to console you to walk you through the difficult times in your life. Regardless of where you may be today, I hope that with both your heart and your mind, you've heard the word of the Lord. Amen?